thank you, worship ministry. The music was beautiful today. I would invite you to take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to the New Testament, as in that little page that says the New Testament right there in front of Matthew. That's what we're going to talk about today. All that information that you see on your sheets in front of you, instead of filling in blanks today, since there was so much information to go over, I shared with my assistant this week, I just said, hey, just, just put all the answers in there. And if you're watching online, and, or perhaps you're here in this room and you thought, uh, well, normally you mail, email out the outline with the church bulletin, and we didn't get the e outline emailed to us this week. Yeah, that's called strategy. I knew if I'd have sent this out, nobody would have come to church. So, <clears throat> but anyway, um, we're going to talk about Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to talk about this page right here in the Bible. This one right here in my Bible, it's on this side, it says the New Testament. That single page that separates the Old from the New Testament. That's really what we're going to talk about today, and we're going to do so to try to make sense of the details of the story. We're going to try to reverse engineer the details that we see here, because there are certain details that are just lost upon us, because we're not accustomed to the regular understanding of the history of that time. So when we read the story, we don't appreciate necessarily the details that are there. And can draw from that. So we're trying to reverse engineer to try to, to see what happened. Uh, yesterday I was doing some pressure washing and um, we had 30 people in, in town for Thanksgiving of Andrea's family. It was a wonderful time. Uh, but yesterday uh, my nephew was outside as I was pressure washing and my son and I didn't want to get them wet so they got up in the cab of my truck uh, and sat there while I was uh, pressure washing the, dr the driveway. Well, I keep a, a tin of scold. No, I'm kidding. It's a... <laughs> I don't dip. All right, I keep a tin of icebreaker mints. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a. I, I like the winter uh, winter green, not winter green. The the winter the blue one, whatever it's called, winter ice. There we go. Um, it's it's a little tin, and I love those icebreaker mints. And I had just bought a brand new tin. And anyway, um, after I got through power washing, I opened the door and I noticed the tin was open and they were all gone. There's about a hundred of them in there. And my nephew pointed at my son and said, I didn't eat a single one. And Judah's mouth, not Judah, Peter's mouth is so minty. And he, I, goodness, and I was trying to, the empty tin, the boy with candy all in his mouth, I said, I, kn I know what's happened here. I'm able to put the pieces together and understand the story of what took place in this cab while I was pressure washing. However, I uh, come to this story, and there's details that I don't necessarily appreciate, and you don't necessarily appreciate, because the, the history is foreign to us. So I want to say one more thing before I keep going, is that I don't want today, why am I doing this? I don't want you to come away today and you to say, wow, Brother Matt, you're, you're just so smart. You know all that stuff. Friends, I had to study this week to know all this stuff because I've learned it once, but it's 
long been forgotten and I had to refresh myself. I don't want you, I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge because again, I had to lean on others to put this together. I'm wanting you to understand. If it's one of the things that I want to do as a pastor is I want to be helpful. And my job as a pastor in one aspect is to be helpful in your understanding of the Bible. I want it to make sense to you because the Bible is beautiful. It is just beautiful. The story is beautiful. Jesus is beautiful. And the more we understand it, the more beautiful it becomes. So let's look. We're going to come back to the blank page, but let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, we're going to talk about him today, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. A couple details. They came from the east. This would be Persia or Parthia as it was known in that day. Now listen to this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. That's, what, that's one of the, we're trying to reverse engineer this. Why is he troubled? And not only why is he troubled, why is all of Jerusalem troubled with him? And assembled, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. Now, you know the rest of the story. Did Herod really want to worship the baby? No. He wanted to kill the baby. And we want to talk about Herod. Now, looking at this story today, first of all, I want you to see Herod here is called a king. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about why is he afraid and why all Jerusalem with him? And what does it mean that these wise men have come from the east? All of those answers to those questions can be found on that blank page right there in your Bible that says the New Testament. Now, we're going to, with this outline today, put the information on that blank page that you need in order to understand this. But look back in the text in verse number one. A very key word here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the, what's the word? King. Hmm. Herod the king. Why is that important? Well, this king is afraid of a baby. Why be afraid of a baby? Well, principle number one is this. Herod is the officially appointed but biblically illegitimate king of the Jews. Herod is the officially appointed but illegitimate king of the Jews. Well, what do you mean by that? How can you be officially appointed, appointed but biblically illegitimate? Well, officially appointed because, as we're going to find out, Herod was appointed by the Roman powers to be king in Judea. 
But he was biblically illegitimate because he was not of the house and the line of David. If you read Luke's uh, Christmas nativity story, when you read about Joseph, and there is a phrase in there when he's returning to Bethlehem because he was, you know the line, of the house and the lineage of David. Why is that important? Well, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, there's a detail that I want you to see. But before we do that, here's our statement under this first principle. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 establishes that legitimately king, the legitimate kingly line of Israel from David and the Old Testament long told of the rightful line. Let me say it again. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 establishes the legitimate kingly line of Israel from David and the Old Testament long told of the rightful line. So let's look in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. All these details are tying into chapter 2. The son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. What's the next two words? The king. Oh, so this is not just any genealogy. This is a king's genealogy. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Here is what I want you to see. It is repeated again that David is the important kingly person here. Look in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. It will also be on the screen. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What is Matthew doing? He is establishing that Jesus is from David, and David was the king. It's important for us to know this. In 2 Samuel chapter number 7, verses 12 through 13 in the Old Testament, it talks about the promise. God speaking through the prophet to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The only legitimate kings in Israel come from the line of David. Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17. We looked at this for the last two weeks. This was Balaam's prophecy. 
says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter will rise, shall rise out of Israel. That this ruler is going to rise up, a king is going to rise up out of Israel. But if you look at Genesis chapter 49, it will also be on the screen. Genesis 49, 9 through 10. As the old man Jacob, granddaddy Jacob, was dying, he blesses all 12 of his sons. And some of them were mixed blessings. Uh, But when he comes to the son of Judah, Jacob is prophesying, he's laying hands on his sons, and he's an old man, he's about to die, and he says this of Judah before he dies. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. This is the imagery, by the way, for Revelation. The lion of the tribe of Judah. It's riffing, so to speak, off of Genesis 49. Okay, from Revelation 5 there. But listen to what it says. Then the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Okay, help me. Who holds a scepter? A king. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and he shall be the obedience of the peoples. Here's what Jacob is saying. He's prophesying. He's laying hands on Judah and he's saying, listen, the scepter's not going to part from him. He is going to rule for king as king forever and ever. And all the obedience of the peoples will be brought to him. So, here's what's important in this first principle. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 establishes the legitimate kingly line of Israel from David and the Old Testament long told of the rightful line. Now, enter back into chapter 2. We read about a king, but not a Davidic king. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Well, who's Herod? Well, let's talk about that. Let's look at B under principle one now. Herod was not Jewish. Herod was not Jewish. Now, his mother practiced Judaism. She practiced Judaism. She had converted to the faith when the Hasmoneans took over. We'll talk about that. They're also known as the Maccabees. You may know who they are, but we're going to talk about that. I know I'm throwing out big words, but... We're going to talk about that in a minute. We're now talking about the blank page, that New Testament page. Herod was not Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau. Now, somebody tell me, who was Esau's daddy? Do you remember? Isaac. That's right. And Esau had how many sons? Two. No, excuse me. Isaac had how many sons? Two. Jacob and Esau. Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. But wait a second, Herod is not from Jacob. Herod is Idumean. He is from Esau. So Herod is not Jewish. He was a descendant of Esau by his dad and Ishmael. Does anybody remember who Ishmael was? Who was his daddy? Abraham by Hagar the Egyptian. So his mother uh, was Nabataean. It's an empire southeast of Israel. So Herod, biologically, is from Esau and Ishmael. He is not from the kingly line of David. Now, we're going to put 
this picture of, that's a photograph of King Herod. No, I'm just kidding. It's not a photograph. It's an etching. We don't really know what he looks like, but this is, this is one that is frequently cited, that this is Herod the Great. Um, so let's continue to talk about him. Herod, through friendships in Rome, supplanted the Hasmonean dynasty, which ruled Israel for 100 years. Now you're thinking, who is the... Ha I haven't read that in the Bible. Exactly. We're talking about the white page. There are 400 years that separate the Old Testament from the New Testament in this white page. And one of the kingdoms which ruled Israel during that time was called the Hasmoneans. And we're going to talk about them in just a minute. I'm going to explain to you who they are. But Herod, through friendships in Rome, supplanted the Hasmonean dynasty, which had ruled Israel for nearly 100 years. So let's talk about the history that we do know from the Bible. First, the kingdom of Israel, rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah, 445 years before Jesus, was overrun by the Greek conqueror Alexander the Great in 332 B.C. Now, I know you've heard of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. Ezra rebuilt the temple. And then, after that, in 332, Alexander the Great, the Greek Macedonian conqueror, overran Jerusalem. In fact, there's an artistic depiction of this, of Alexander bowing before the high priest. Whether or not that happened, I'm not quite sure. Um, but that is supposedly Alexander the Great and the high priest there of Israel as he overran the Holy Land. So, Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the, the temple and the wall. Alexander the Great comes and conquers it in 332 B.C. But Alexander the Great, if you know the story, died as a young man, did not see the age of even his early 30s. So, following the untimely death of Alexander, two Greek dynasties formed from his wake. The Ptolemies from Egypt and the Seleucids from Syria. These two dynasties ruled and fought over Judea from 332 to 141 B.C. I want you to think about that. These two kingdoms fought over who was going to rule Jerusalem for almost 200 years. Now, if you'll look here on the screen, the pink portion, you may not be able to read it from where you are, but the pink portion is the Seleucid dynasty. And then down here on the left corner, you see a blue-green, it says Ptolemaic Kingdom. That's the kingdom of Egypt. That's the other empire. Those two big kingdoms, and you see where they meet right there in the middle, which is Israel. They meet at Jerusalem. They fought over Jerusalem for 200 years of who would rule them. The Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemaic kingdom, Ptolemaic kingdom in the south. So, the next thing I want you to see is this. Eventually, an evil Seleucid king arose. This evil Seleucid king was named King Antiochus Epiphanes. You may have remembered him. He was the final king to rule Israel before the Jews won their independence. He threw a pig on the altar in the temple, igniting a revolt amongst the Jews. 
So there's going to be another picture here. Um, he had broken his nose. No, I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> Street fights are hard. But uh, anyway, that's all we have in Antiochus Epiphanes, a handsome fellow. But he uh, was a tyrant. He was a tyrant throwing a, a pig on the altar where Alexander had been respectful of the places that he conquered. Antiochus Epiphanes was no such ruler. And it was in response to this that patriotic fervor was stoked in Israel because of the evil ruling of Antiochus Epiphanes. And because in response and backlash against Antiochus Epiphanes, there was something called the Maccabean Revolt. Now you say, I don't, I've never heard of the Maccabean Revolt. Have you heard of Hanukkah? It is the Jewish feast that is celebrates the Israeli independence from the Seleucids. When the Maccabees came together, it's a family I'm going to tell you about in just a second, and threw off their Syrian oppressors and won their independence. It was a revolutionary war. So, the Maccabean Revolt was led by a, here's a key word though, look at your outline, what, what tribe are the Maccabees from? Levite. Levite is not Judah. But anyway, the Maccabean Revolt was led by a Levite named Judas Maccabeus and his family. They successfully freed Israel from their Seleucid or Syrian overlords. After winning independence, the Maccabees became Israel's de facto royal family beginning the Hasmonean dynasty in 141. Now, it only makes sense that if the Maccabees overthrow the Syrians that they kind of become the new royal family. But what's the problem here? According to the Bible, what line must the kings come from? Levi? Judah. The Maccabeans, because they were patriots and overthrew their Syrian oppressors and got tired of the corruption and evil and they overthrew them. But remember, the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans are Levites and not from King David's line of Judah. I want you to see picture number five. Picture number five you see here, I'm sorry, the colors kind of run together. But after they overthrew uh, this, you had, this is already labeled for the next part, but over here, the Parthenian Empire, if you see this, that's what was left of the Seleucids at the time. And then down here, the pink in the corner with Egypt, that was the Ptolemies. And then in here in the middle was Judea. That was ruled by the Hasmonean Kingdom. It was actually ruled by Israel for almost a hundred years. Patriots won their freedom. That's where we get Hanukkah. And uh, the Maccabees began to rule as the Hasmonean dynasty. All right, let's keep going. But then things get complicated. In 63 BC, you know, the Hasmonean dynasty was established in 141. In 63, remember in BC, the numbers get smaller, not larger. But in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey the Great comes from Italy and conquered the Greek Seleucids in Syria and the Hasmonean, Hasmonean Jews in Judea. So Israel had won its freedom. The Seleucids had been pushed out. 
But now a new conqueror comes from the West, the Romans, under Pompey the Great, and he conquers both of them. So after conquering the Hasmonean kingdom, the Romans set up the Hasmoneans as a client state to the Roman Republic. The Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, are allowed to keep their power, but they serve Rome. It's like, okay, you're a royal family. You've been doing this gig for almost 100 years now. Y'all are good, but you serve us. You're going to bring us tribute because we are now your Roman overlords. Well, Pompey leaves the scene. So again, after conquering the Hasmonean kingdom, the Romans set up the Hasmoneans as a client state to the Roman Republic, but Pompey leaves the scene. Pompey was later caught in a Roman civil war against the Roman populist, a guy by the name of General Julius Caesar. Ever heard of him? Julius Caesar. And Pompey was assassinated after fleeing to Egypt in 48 B.C. So here's what happened. The Roman Republic had two superstar generals. One was Julius Caesar in the West. The other was Pompey the Great in the East. And now these two generals were clashing in the middle. And Pompey loses. And then Caesar marches on Rome. So Pompey flees to Egypt. And he is assassinated in Egypt by friends of Julius Caesar. But then Julius Caesar was assassinated in Rome only four years later by the Roman Republic, the Roman Republican Senate, led by a guy named Brutus and Cassius. Perhaps you remember the famous line from Shakespeare's play, Et tu Brute, you too Brutus. That is, Brutus, brought, they brought out the knives and they killed Julius Caesar on the floor of the Roman Republic Senate or the Roman Republican Senate. So after the deaths of Pompey and Caesar, the Hasmonean, excuse me, all these words, Hasmonean kingdom regained a short-lived freedom from Rome and allied themselves with the Parthenian Empire. I want you to see this on the screen. Let's think for a minute. If Pompey conquers Jerusalem, conquers Israel, then Pompey dies, and then... Julius Caesar is now ruling in Rome, but now Julius Caesar has died. Who was left in charge in the meantime? Oh, it was the Hasmoneans. So they are now, they decide to ally themselves with the neighborhood empire called the Parthenians. You see the Parthian empire there? So the Hasmoneans align themselves with them. By the way, this is the place where the wise men came from. The wise men came from the east, the Parthian Empire. So, um, upon the assassination of Julius Caesar, another civil war broke out between the Roman populace loyal to Caesar under the leadership of a guy named Mark Anthony and the Roman forces loyal to the Roman Senate. Mark Antony was a friend of Julius Caesar, And then the rest of the forces were friends of Brutus and Cassius (coughs) with the Roman Senate. So there's a civil war between the established Republican Senate and the Roman populists. They clash, and there's a civil war. And they 
fought throughout the Mediterranean. During this civil war, Roman populist Mark Antony um, overthrew the Hasmoneans and Parthians in, Parthians in Jerusalem and appointed Herod as a tetrarch or governor over Judea. And he was later named King of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. Here's what you need to know. There's another Roman civil war. And in the midst of that, Herod gets appointed as governor by Mark Antony. And then after that, the Roman Senate decides to make him king of Judea. So Herod aligned himself with Mark Antony and the Romans, and the Hasmoneans had aligned themselves with Parthia. So Herod is siding with the Romans. Herod is becoming a savvy leader. Here's the next thing. Herod, to try to be savvy about it, married a Hasmonean princess. He married a Hasmonean um, princess named Mariamne I to strengthen his hold on the throne. Herod knows, this is her picture, a painting of her, Herod knows he has been appointed by the Romans and the Jews hate the Romans. So if he wants to secure his throne, he needs to marry a local girl. Enter Mariamne the first. Let's keep going. But here's the thing. He wasn't exactly a good husband. Once he married Mariamne the first, he became paranoid that the Hasmoneans would seek to regain power and supplant him through her. So Herod decided with the Romans. Remember, he decided with Mark Antony. And the Hasmoneans had sided with the Roman Senate and the Parthenians. Parthenians. And the Roman senatorial forces and the Parthians went back, lost, and the Parthians went back to Persia. Therefore, the Hasmonean or Maccabean dynasty was finished. So because Herod was paranoid of losing his gains, he killed the remaining members of the Hasmonean royal family along with his wife, Mariamne I. Remember, he married her initially to bring the kingdom together. But once the Hasmoneans had been defeated, he kills his wife and his two sons. These are the two sons. This is actually the famous painting of Mariamne going to her execution. So Daddy Herod kills his boys and he kills his wife because he's so afraid that their family is going to try to regain power through her. So Herod killed all his political rivals and opponents and was officially established as king of the Jews in 37 BC, and the Herodian dynasty began. So let's go to this next thing. Herod, through political savviness, played his Roman overlords to his advantage. Because remember, he's king, but he's king under their rule. So after the Roman Senate's army was vanquished, there was another civil war regarding who would succeed Julius Caesar as the sole leader of the populous Roman army. And a 10-year conflict between Octavian, the nephew of Julius Caesar, and Mark Anthony. This conflict broke out between them, between Octavian and Mark Anthony, along with his uh, partner in crime there, uh, Cleopatra of Egypt. So during the new civil war, Herod sided with Antony and Cleopatra because their forces were larger. 
And in an unexpected turn of fate, Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra at the naval battle of Actum, Greece in 30 BC. Antony and Cleopatra fled to Egypt before taking their lives. Here's what I want you to see. It's highlighted on your outline. This time, Herod had sided with the wrong Romans. He sided with Mark Antony, but Mark Antony lost. Octavian had won, but he was able to persuade Octavian. Again, Herod is so shrewd. He kills his own family to secure his kingdom. And then he is able, after siding with the other side, persuade, able to persuade Octavian that he would be loyal to Octavian in Rome and secure tribute from Syria and Egypt. And here's a key detail. Herod also persuaded Octavian his kingdom would serve as a defense against the Parthian Empire. Who's the Parthian Empire? This is the Persians. So, I want you to hear this. Herod's rule is established because he promises Octavian, I won't let the Parthians come to Jerusalem and sack it. The Parthian is the land of the Magi. The Parthian Empire is the land of the Magi. So, if you don't know who Octavian is, he was later named Augustus in 27 BC by the Roman Senate. The era of the Roman populism was over and the empire had officially begun, and the King Herod the Great was still ruling Judea. He had successfully manipulated and played the Romans and brutally executed all of his local rivals. Also, Herod did other things. Herod utilized the technology of his day to create great and beautiful buildings and defense works and to ingratiate himself to people he needed for his rule. So, for instance, if you've ever heard of the temple referred to as Herod's Temple, the reason it was called Herod's Temple is Herod ingratiated himself to the chief priests and the scribes by expanding and renovating the Temple Mount. Here's how it worked. Herod knew for his reign to be successful, he would need the support of the religious people. So he said, oh, hey, you've got a temple building project? I'll foot the bill. He's ingratiating himself to the religious leaders. Also, he ingratiated himself to Caesar Augustus by building him the port city of Caesarea Maritima. Herod further ingratiated himself to Caesar by building Herodium, an artificial mountain fortress to serve as defense against the Parthians, the empire of the Magi. All of that information, the reason I gave it to you in print is because I knew it'd be so much to digest because there's a lot that goes on that one page in the New Testament. You can hang on to it and look at it later if you need to help make sense of it. Herod, y'all, here's our takeaway. What about application for today? Because this needs to be more than a history lesson. I want you to see this. Herod had one play. Control. Control. Herod had one play that he ran over and over again. He tried to control himself, those around him, and even those far away from him. Herod was addicted to control. And when we think about our lives, we don't often think of control as a sin. But control leads to pride. 
It leads to us overestimating who we are and what we can do and actually who we are in the grand state of things. Control can lead us to very, very sinful actions. You see, Herod had great success. And success leads us to overestimate our ability to control our lives. Herod had been able to negotiate. He had been able to secure his throne. He had tons of success. And it made him overestimate his ability to control his life. And also, money leads us to overestimate our ability to control our lives. Herod the Great was so wealthy and has secured so much wealth. And money leads us to overestimate our ability to control our lives. Also looking at Herod's life, an influential network, he had powerful friends in Rome, an influential network leads us to overestimate our ability to control our lives. But it wasn't just an influential network for Herod. Modern technology that Herod employed to build all these cities and defense works Modern technology leads us to overestimate our ability to control our lives. Political and savvy and quick thinking. Political savvy and quick thinking leads us to overestimate our ability to control our lives. Herod did that too. And then power over others leads us to overestimate our ability to control our lives. Here's what I want you to see. Herod in the world's eyes, was successful, politically savvy. He was a great builder. He united kingdoms, even though it was through murder. He secured his kingdom through control. But it leads me to the final principle, which is this. When you seek to control everything, everything ends up controlling you. Don't miss what I just said. Because this is the moral of the historical parable called Herod. When you seek to control everything, everything begins up controlling you. Herod had to be great in the minds of Jews, so he rebuilt the temple. In fact, we're told from history that Herod was so worried that because he'd been a tyrant that no one would cry at his funeral that he ordered, executed a bunch of heads of noble families so that there would be people crying on the day he died. That's how into control this guy was. He's trying to control everyone around him. And friends, we can build our life around control. Some of us, through success or money or our network or technology, savviness or power, use it to control others. We try to control our families. We try to control our employers, our employees. We just try to control. And here's the dead-end game of that. When you seek to control everything, everything controls you. This is why Herod is so paranoid when he is told, hey, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Herod thinks, oh, I dealt with that problem. I killed the Hasmoneans. They're all gone. I killed my own wife. I killed my sons. And then... The chief priests and the scribes say, no, 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 the king of the Jews is going to come from Judah. And what does Herod do? He orders that all the babies in Bethlehem be killed too. Why? Because he's so into control. We build our life around control and everything ends up controlling us. But friends, there's only one person who's in control. 
Jesus. Jesus. No matter, like, there is, especially these days, if I had a dollar for every time somebody has told me, hey, you know what's really going on in the world? There's a handful of about three or four or five powerful people that make, they're a cabal, and they decide everything, and they control everybody in everybody's life, and they're, everybody's life, and they're really powerful people, and they, they're the ones who are secretly running the world. Friends, there may be people who try, but nobody can run the world. Nobody can run the world. Only Jesus. And if you try, it'll make you crazy. That's what Herod tried to do. He tried to run the world and it made him crazy. Friends, if you try to run your family, it will make you crazy. If you try to run those around you, it will make you crazy. If you try to control your church, it'll make you crazy. That applies to pastors too. Because only Jesus is capable of this. So we can build our life around control like Pilate, not Pilate, like Herod, or we can do the other option. And here's the last thing. We can build our life around God's rule. There's two options. You get to control the world or God does. You get to control the world and be king or Jesus gets to be king. But if you're controlling the world, God will always be a threat to you because God is establishing his kingdom and he will not be stopped. No matter how hard Herod tried, God was not stopped. Jesus still came and Jesus is still king. And the same is true for today. You can't stop Jesus. You can't stop God. You can't stop him in your life, in your family's life. Jesus cannot be stopped in our world. He cannot be stopped in this nation. You can't stop Jesus. And if you try to, you'll run yourself insane. Because when you seek to control everything, everything ends up controlling you. As a closing thought, those two options, we can build our life around control or we can build our life around God's rule. There is one king in the Old Testament, the most famous non-Jewish king in all of the Old Testament, that had this same thing happen to him. He had sought to control the world, and it drove him crazy. God allowed him to go crazy, in fact, for seven years. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar. After seven years of being driven crazy because he had sought to control everything, listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, 
and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, I just gave you a ton of information. Some of us are still trying to figure it out. But here's what I want you to take away. Friends, we all in our lives face complications, face difficulties. We want our lives to be good. We want our children to be healthy, make good decisions. We want our businesses to exceed. We want things in church to go well. All of these things. But all of those things are ultimately out of our hands. You can't control your kids. You can try. But if you try, they'll hurt you. You can't control your grandchildren either. You certainly can't control the country. Well, you can't control what's going on in the church. I'm the pastor here, and I can't control what's going on in the church. We can't control that. We can't control the economy. We can't control the stock market. We can't control any of that. But if you try, you'll hurt yourself. So maybe the lesson for us today in Herod is this, is acknowledge that there's only one who can control the uncontrollables, and that's Jesus. And some of us have been persuaded by some success that we do have a grip on things because we've gotten good at stuff like Herod. Don't be deceived. Control is only a facade. Things can fall apart just like that. The message of Herod is this. Take the posture of King Nebuchadnezzar and acknowledge Jesus' rule from heaven in your life. Is there something that you're waiting about in the lives of your children and it's bothering you and you want it to come to pass? Give it to Jesus and say, God, have your way and do your will in them. Don't try to control them or manipulate them to achieve that because it won't work. You'll only drive them farther away. Jesus is the only one who has, his, has the whole world in his hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a lot to take in to think about one little page in the Bible with 400 years. Lord, that one little page tells us that men were doing what they always try to do to control things. But Lord, we know that only you are truly in control. And the sooner we learn that, Lord, the healthier our life will be as we just turn and surrender and say, Lord, you have your way. You bring about your king when you want to. Lord, give us hearts like the wise men, come and ready to be a part of what you're doing, rather than just trying to hold on to what we think's important. Lord, we love you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.